This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Galatians. We're going to be reading from Galatians 1, verses 1 to 12, and chapter 2, verses 7 to 21. And that can be found on page 823 in the Pew Bible. Beginning with Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have said, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, starting with verse 7. On the contrary, they say that I had been entrusted with with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, and those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, 
Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is God's word. Thank you. That reading is a little bit longer than what we're maybe used to, but it illustrates... uh, quite a bit of where we're going this morning. Now, there once uh, was a time in New England when the local church stood not only at town centers throughout the region, but was central to everyday life of much, if not most, of the population. So even on frosty mornings like this, uh, without any heat in a meeting house, parishioners would gather for worship. They'd had these little foot stoves that they'd put hot coals in and keep at their feet to to try and stay warm for a a service that was often two hours or more in length. Then they'd take a break for dinner, come back in the afternoon for another service that was another two hours, and often both of those having a message about an hour long. Now, don't worry, we're only going to do one hour-long sermon this morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, Now... Obviously, not all New Englanders uh, were actively involved in church life, but most of them were uh, with varying degrees of commitment and personal faith. In fact, I think as, as many of you probably know, the Royal Charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony says that its very purpose was to win and incite the natives of the country to the knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith. Uh, even as, as uh, the Puritan faith diversified over uh, the years, the basic tenets of gospel faith were still widely shared. A recognition of the sinfulness of sin in humanity's fallen condition, of God's sovereign mercy in redeeming sinners through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. A, uh, a recognition of how necessary it was to be personally converted, to have a personal faith in Jesus in order to know God and walk uh, with him, live a holy life. And, and of course, the sufficiency of God's revealed word in Scripture. These were the air uh, that, that people breathed in the culture uh, 200 years ago. Interestingly, Massachusetts was the last state among the original colonies to officially sever ties between church and state. Uh, but even when they did so in 1833, the constitutional amendment that was passed affirmed, quote, the public worship of God and instructions in piety, religion, and morality promote happiness and prosperity of a people and the security of republican government. So the Christian faith in New England and the local church were highly valued and integral parts of society. My, how times have changed. You know, 
today the name of Jesus is more likely to be used as a swear word than a reference to our Savior and King. If you overhear people talking about Christianity in a restaurant or, or on the street, the tone is quite likely to be derogatory or negative. If you talk to someone about Christianity, the reactions tend to range from you know, offense to suspicion to kind of a, a, a polite indifference to just a blank stare. They have no clue what you're even referring to. You know, the polls tell us that Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and Massachusetts are the top four least religious states in the country. And uh, only about 2% of New Englanders attend an evangelical, a gospel-preaching church. Percentage of atheists and agnostics uh, in Massachusetts is nearly double the national average, right around 17%. Uh, and yet... Uh, for many, as, as one writer notes, it's not even that they have turned their back on the family religion or let their parents down by bailing on the Easter service this year. Their parents probably didn't go to church much in the first place. So we live in what's been described as a post-Christian or a gospel-depleted culture. And yet, the gospel of Jesus is afoot in New England. Two major publications have run stories in just the last month and a half on what they call a quiet revival in New England, a growing movement of evangelical faith right here in the least religious part of the country. A lot of that is among immigrant communities, which is really exciting, but a significant portion is among English speakers as well. This is really exciting. God is doing something in New England. And it is at this time, in this place, among this culture, that God has given us, as Westgate Church, a vision to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. Now, my point in comparing the difference between New England's heritage and the largely gospel-deprived climate of today is not to suggest Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could go back to the glory days? Uh, I'm not suggesting they had everything right, nor that they faced no harsh opposition, nor that it was a good idea for church and state to operate so closely together. Rather, my, my point, my goal is to underscore the fact that we live in a very different world today. And yet, many of the ways that churches go about trying to reach people for the gospel are more at home in the world that existed back then when the church was a respected and trusted part of society, when people knew who you were talking about when you said the name Jesus. A lot of our methods are more comfortable and at home back then than they are today. So many ministries today depend on getting people to come to a building or or to a program instead of going and bringing the gospel of Jesus to where people are living. So what does it look like for us, for this people here at Westgate, at this moment in history, in this place, to move toward or even to charge toward the vision God has given us, to be a gospel-centered community on mission for Christ? What will it take for our experience of church to be less like something we go to and more like something we are? A family 
of missionary servants empowered by God's Spirit to make disciples for Christ. To share life together. Not just when we gather Sunday morning. It's not less than that. But to share life as a normal rhythm of who we are and what we do. To to bear one another's burdens. And not just to share life with each other within the community of faith, but with those around us as well who don't yet know the Lord. To lay our lives down in loving service to them. To bring the gospel of Jesus to bear on every part of life. What will it take for us here and now to live out our vision? That's the question that we're wrestling with through the month of January. Of course, we're going to wrestle with that long beyond January, but we're giving special attention to it this month. Taking a break from the Gospel of Matthew, we'll come back to that in February, Matthew 3. But I want us uh, to wrestle together as a congregation about this question. What does it mean for us to move toward our vision as a church? And when I say we, I mean we. I don't have all the answers here. Uh, I want us to wrestle with it. That's why, in addition to a focus on this during the Sunday service, we've got a couple of opportunities for us to gather and pray and talk and wrestle together uh, over these things. That We'll, we'll uh, meet together January 20th during the 9.30 hour uh, to think about this. And then again, on January 27th, following the service, we'll have a lunch together. We'll continue wrestling, praying. And, and we're not talking about... These aren't church business meetings where we're going to talk about the color of the carpet. This is, you know, plotting the gospel-fueled downfall of Satan's grip on New England. That's what we're talking about here. Now, at the end of the 27th, there will be a small business portion to that. Because we do have an annual meeting coming up. But that's not our main goal uh, with these two meetings. Um, those are not unimportant things. But we want to wrestle uh, with these things. God is at work in New England. What role... Is he calling us to play? How do we take the vision he's given us and serve him, practically speaking? That's what we're thinking about. And this morning, uh, our focus is on the center of that vision. Uh, the thing out of which everything flows and to which everything points. And that is the gospel. The gospel as center and what difference that makes. So let's pray together and then we're going to give our attention to the book of Galatians as we think about this. Lord, we are excited to think about what you're doing in this region, Lord. There is a fresh attention to you, to your name, to the hope that is found only in your name. And though it's quiet, though it's still young, uh, your presence is indisputable uh, right now. And we praise you for that. And we pray that we, uh, as a congregation whom you have called out, whom you have cleansed, whom you have knit together in your Son, that we would play our part, that we would joyfully serve your name uh, as a family of missionaries uh, making disciples for you, as a gospel-centered community on mission for you. So, Lord, open our eyes this morning and uh, throughout this month as we think about that and what the implications of our vision are. Give us grace and guidance by your Spirit and be pleased to make much of your name through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
the gospel as center. So what is the gospel? Why must it be central to our lives, our relationships and mission? And what practical difference does that make? What's at stake here? Uh, again, as many of you know, the word gospel simply means good news. It's a, it's a good message. But specifically, good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his eternal son. And Paul's opening greeting in Galatians, I think, gives us a wonderful summary of this gospel message. So look with me at Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom... Be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in these verses, we see several things that help us understand what this gospel is all about. We see first a God with a plan. God who has a will, who does all things according to his will for the sake of his own glory. So the God of the universe created all things. He rules over history and has a plan and a desire to bring all of humanity into the joyful worship of him to recognize his glory and to find our satisfaction in him, which is what we were made to do, to know and relate and honor God, be satisfied in him by worshiping. God has a plan for us and for creation. But we also see in these verses that there is a people with a problem. And that problem is sin. We are sinners and we live in a present evil age, as Paul calls it. So all humanity has rebelled against God's plan. We've rejected his plan. And as a result, God's good creation is fallen in sin. This world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Not only is it broken, it's in bondage to sin. Our hearts are enslaved to our rebellious impulses, which master us. We live in an evil age. But the problem of sin is not just that life doesn't go the way it should, but that a holy God will judge sin and rebellion. He will bring to justice those who throw off his rightful rule, pouring out his holy anger and wrath on sinners in the end. So so we have a God with a plan and a people with a problem who've rebelled against that God. But praise be to God, we also see in these verses a Savior with a solution. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from those sins and to rescue us from the present evil age in accordance with God's plan for the sake of God's glory. That's amazing. God... A holy and just judge in his incomparable love for us chose to act in grace toward a rebellious humanity. That means that though we deserve something terrible for our rebellion, his judgment, instead he offers us something wonderful, new life, forgiveness, adoption into his very own family. 
He sent His Son to live the life of holiness and faithfulness that we couldn't live, to take on Himself the full penalty of our sin. There's no wrath left for those who put their faith in Jesus. The cup of God's wrath was drained by Jesus on the cross to the dregs. There is no judgment left for the Christian. God sent His Son to exhaust that wrath, to pay the price in full on the cross. And so through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God deals justly with sin. The punishment has been dealt. But yet mercifully with sinners. He took it in our place in order to forgive us, to give us new life by the Holy Spirit. That's the hope of the gospel. That is an incredible hope. And it's a hope that we take hold of not by trying harder, not by cleaning up our lives or going to church often enough or becoming a better person. It's a hope that we take hold of by faith, by trusting in Jesus and what he's done. As Paul says later in chapter 2, a person is not justified or, in other words, declared in the right with God, declared not guilty. That's what the word justified means. A person's not justified by works of law, by what we do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is all about what God has done for us. It's news. It's not advice. It's not what we should do for Him. It's what He has done for us through Jesus, His Son. And this gospel, this news, changes everything. It affects everything about who we are and what we do. That's why it must be the center. The center of our vision. The center of all we are and do as a church. So what do we mean by gospel-centered? Simply this. That everything flows out of the gospel and points back to the gospel. It's the center. So it's the source of all that we are, all that we have, all that we do. It all comes from God and what he's done by his spirit through Jesus. Everything flows out of the gospel. And yet it's also the goal of all that we are, all that we have, all that we do. It all points back to God's redeeming work in Jesus. That he might be glorified and that we might be satisfied in him. So the gospel shapes our focus. It keeps us guided by scripture. It keeps us aiming for God's mission, what he's called us to, to make disciples of all nations. The gospel shapes our identity by keeping us rooted in our union with Jesus Christ. It shapes our relationships by keeping us depending on grace with one another. And it shapes our very ability to walk with God by keeping us dependent on the Holy Spirit and His power. We never move on from or outgrow the gospel. Uh, It's been common in recent decades to think of the gospel as merely the front door of the Christian faith. Uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, an author, puts it this way. We have a truncated view of the gospel, tending to see it only as a door we walk through to become a Christian. In this view, the gospel is only for unbelievers. And once you become a Christian, you don't need it anymore except to share with people still outside the door. What you need to hear instead are challenges and how-tos of discipleship. But we fail to see the gospel 
as the basis of our day-to-day acceptance with God. As a result, many believers live in spiritual poverty, Bridges tells us. So in other words, we, many of us rightly understand that we're saved by God's grace through faith, by the Spirit's power. But then once we're in, once we become a Christian, we move away from that truth and that power and live as though the Christian life now depends on me. My effort, my ingenuity, my performance. We still agree with the truth of the gospel. It just has little practical effect on how we live our lives. It's not central. The problem with living that way is not only that it's unbiblical, it's deadly. It's deadly. And yet, it's perhaps the greatest fundamental temptation that every church faces to move away from the gospel to move beyond it, not just in what we believe, but in how we live out the Christian life. This is the temptation that the church in Galatia was dealing with head on. Uh, look, look with me at uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As I've already said, I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So the churches in Galatia that Paul's writing to had been infiltrated by a group of people that we often uh, refer to as the Judaizers. So uh, peop- those who are trying to convince the churches there that the gospel of Jesus, that faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ was not enough to truly know God or walk with God. Instead, you still had to live like a Jew. You had to keep the old covenant law, including things like circumcision. That's what they were telling these churches, that in order to be in the right with God and to live rightly with Him, you still had to hold on to the law. And this was not merely a matter of doctrine, what they believed. It was also a matter of practice, how this church lived. Having begun with the right foundation, so God's grace, justification by faith, uh, dependence on God's Spirit, adherence, to God's word. They began with the right foundation. They were now at risk of making the tragic mistake of moving away from the gospel in their faith and practice. Paul says in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Are you beginning, after beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort and leave the gospel behind? In their case, in these churches' case, their temptation was to look back to Israel's law before Christ had come. Our temptation today is more often to look sideways to new laws of our own making. So our own rules and standards, uh, what we can accomplish in and of ourselves, forgetting God's grace and the power of his spirit. And so we, instead of looking to the gospel, we look to ourselves, we look to what we want to accomplish, we end up creating a culture of performance. that fuels either a a self-righteousness and pride among those who can keep up the show or else a 
self-loathing and shame among those who can't. This kind of culture often looks good from the street. You know, we we keep up the show for people, and our appearances are are are, in, are are well, but it's not real. It's painted on, and therefore it's not going to last. It can produce neither lasting change in our lives and relationships, nor can it bear genuine fruit in the advance of God's gospel. If it does not come from who God is and what He has done, what He is doing by His Spirit, by the grace of Jesus, it will not accomplish anything of lasting value. The gospel of Jesus must be central to all that we are and do. If we're to be faithful to God and if we're to be faithful to the particular vision He's given us as a church. I want us to think about what's at stake with this for a few minutes. Um, Think with me about how keeping the gospel of Jesus central, how that shapes our focus as a church, what we're all about. Now, if we look at Paul's focus in Galatians, we see that it it came from the gospel. It came from what God had done in his life. If you look at 1.15 through 16, as Paul describes his calling from God, God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So his his very focus and calling comes from the gospel, what God had done by his grace and the spirit through Jesus. And yet his focus also points back to the gospel. His aim in life was to make much of Christ. He says in 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his only boast, to make Jesus look good. The goal of his labors was to help others know Christ and delight in him and depend upon him so as to reflect his glory. He describes his ministry among the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, as being in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He wants to bring the gospel of Jesus to bear on their lives that Christ would be formed in them, that they would delight and depend and reflect Jesus, their Savior. The gospel gave him his focus. So the question we must ask, how do our ministries work together to bring the gospel of Jesus to bear on our lives and on the lives of those around us who don't yet know the Lord. Is the gospel of Jesus our focus? Does it give shape and significance and direction to everything that we're doing? Do our ministries emphasize not just what God expects of us, but what God provides for us in order to meet his own expectations? The grace of God, the Spirit of God. Jesus. How comfortable do we feel explaining the gospel to someone who doesn't know the Lord? You know, how, how comfortable do we feel helping a fellow Christian apply the gospel to a question or a conflict or a situation in their life? You know, helping them see how what God has done through Jesus 
and his death and resurrection by his grace in the power of the spirit, how that speaks to the very matter I'm facing and wrestling with right now. Maybe it's dealing with a grouchy neighbor. You know, how does the grace in of God in Jesus give me patience and love for that neighbor and remind me that there's something greater at stake than getting their dog to stop pooping in my lawn? That their soul is at stake. And that's far greater significance. How does the gospel open my eyes to that reality? How about fighting against sin? Helping someone who's, who's wrestling against sin in their life? I mean, do we only give our friend strategies for how to avoid temptation, which is important? Or do we bring them to the cross where their sin that has a grip on their life has been dealt with decisively, where Jesus became that sin in their place to cleanse them and forgive them and take away that sin? Do we point them simply to human strategies for overcoming it? Or do we help them lean by faith on the Spirit of God rather than the weakness of our flesh? Do we labor in prayer together, opening our lives to them, bearing their burden together? Do our ministries help bring the gospel to bear on our lives and on the lives of our neighbors and friends? And how are we as shepherds doing at helping you to be able to love one another that way? That's another question we have to wrestle with. The gospel of Jesus must be our focus because if it's not our focus, then either we're going to lack focus as a church and we're going to be all over the map doing a whole lot of good things that don't avail to a whole lot. Or we'll become all about something other than what God is doing to deal with sin and establish his kingdom through the, death, the life, death, and resurrection of his son. We'll, we'll give ourselves to some other mission than making disciples for Christ. And it may even be a good thing, and we might be really good at it. But it's a secondary thing. If it's not the gospel, if it doesn't flow out of God's grace, of, of what Christ has done in the power of the spirit and point back to that gospel, it will be powerless to accomplish anything of lasting significance for God. The centrality of the gospel must shape our focus. What about our identity? What's at stake in keeping the gospel central in understanding who we are? Our identity. We're actually going to talk more about this next week. Specifically, our identity as a church, as a congregation. But so much of what we struggle with in life is rooted in a poor understanding of who we are. Specifically, who we are in Jesus. We find our value and significance in what we have, in what we do, in where we live, in what others have done to us. That shapes who we are. We try and anchor our identity in our accomplishments and our achievements, even our spiritual ones, or else, and usually at the same time, we try to hide our failures and our flaws and bury our wounds because we want people to love and accept us. We want to look good for God and for one another. 
But listen to where Paul anchors his identity in Galatians. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we believe in Jesus, we are made new. We are united by faith with Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Our old self, the self that's in bondage to sin, is crucified. It's killed. It's dead and buried. And we are raised spiritually, born again to a new life in Christ. And that new life changes everything about who we are. Our identity and our significance comes from our relationship with Jesus, our union with him. As one author describes, you aren't what's been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. You aren't what you do, but what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Who you are in Christ determines what you do. And the the security of, of having our identity rooted in our union with Jesus, it frees us to risk loving, to risk serving, even to risk being rejected for the sake of the gospel because we know we've been accepted by God. Our identity. The gospel of Jesus has a huge impact on our relationships as well, which kind of flows out of our identity. Let's think about that for a minute. What's at stake in keeping the gospel central to how we treat one another, to how we interact with God and, and, and with one another? Our default mode as humans is to perform for God and others and then to get others to perform for us. That's our default mode. We are all legalists at heart which makes us downplay the sinfulness of our sin and exaggerate how good and holy we are. Because again, we think, you know, back to identity, we'll find acceptance or or otherwise get our way if we can keep up the show. And for others to get close to us, that means they too have to put on the show. And if they're not good enough, they're not going to feel welcome. But our relationship with God is not based on our performance. It's not a show. It's based on grace. Again, God has given us something wonderful, something we could have never deserved, even though we deserved something terrible. That's grace. Otherwise, Jesus would have never needed to die on the cross. Think about that. That's what Paul says in 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God, For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If if I can put on the show and if I can just dig down deep inside of me and, and perform for God or for you, I don't need Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. If life's a performance. But I do need Jesus. I desperately need Jesus. And so do you. We are poor Miserable, weak, 
and needy sinners apart from Christ. Sinners upon whom God has lavished His grace in His Son. And so, our relationship with God is not contingent on our behavior. It's contingent, our relationship with God is not contingent on our behavior. It's contingent on Christ's behavior. It's, we are declared in the right with God, not by works, but by faith, by believing in Jesus. Again, Galatians 2.16. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And this truth, that our, our, the basis of our relationship with God is not a performance, but it's based on grace in Jesus. This truth not only affects how we relate to God, but how we relate to one another as well. When we are united by faith with Jesus, we're also united with each other in the body of Christ, in the family of God. Paul says in 3.26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so our relationships, how we treat one another, should flow out of the gospel, what Christ has done, having made us into a new people, and point back to the gospel as well. And Paul illustrates uh, what's at stake here in applying the gospel to our relationships in a really interesting way in chapter 2. Where he tells a story of a conflict that happened uh, in while he was in the city of Antioch. A story that illustrates the problem that the churches in Galatia are facing. So, Paul had had a, a beautiful, unifying time with the other apostles in Jerusalem as they compared the messages they were preaching and recognized God's hand on each of their ministries. But, he says in verse 11, this is chapter 211, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Paul's partner, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? I mean, talk about an awkward moment in church history. You know, you've got Paul and Peter, two pillars of the church, going at it publicly. But what's interesting here is that their disagreement is not over doctrine. It's not over what to believe. It's over practice. Whether Peter's behavior of usually eating with Gentiles and even living like a Gentile, a non-Jew, but then pulling back 
from that in order to win the approval of some who look down on that kind of stuff, of whether that behavior was, quote, in line with the truth of the gospel. Do you catch that language? The gospel doesn't just shape what we believe, but how we live. And do we walk in line with that truth in how we treat one another? What Paul's saying here is that Peter lost sight of the gospel. And the the result was this devastating effect on relationships within the body. Now, that's pretty easy for us to do. It's pretty easy to do. In our selfishness, you know, we take our eyes off the cross and we look at ourselves. We end up ignoring others. We, we neglect others. We even take advantage of others in order to get what we want. Using people instead of loving them. In our fear, we avoid people. Brothers and sisters whom we are united with in the Lord, we avoid them. We marginalize them. We tear others down in order to make ourselves look good. Forgetting that our acceptance in Christ is, is solid and instead putting on a show. In our pain, we withhold forgiveness from those who hurt us, closing our hearts in silent bitterness or in vengeance, seeking to inflict on them the very pain they caused us. We take our eyes off the gospel and the results relationally are devastating. So what did Paul do when Peter stepped out of line with the truth of the gospel? He pointed him back to the gospel. He reminded him what we read just a minute ago in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that all who trust in Christ are part of the same family. And this whole ethnic or, or uh, you know, social status or gender type things of dividing one another, there's no place for that in the body of Christ. Moreover, it reminds us that just as God lavished his grace on us while we were yet sinners, so we are to give grace to those who hurt us. We are to give grace to those who hurt us. Because the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that frees us to deal honestly with our sin. It provides an adequate solution. It allows us to to be honest about how we've been hurt and how we hurt others because in the cross there is grace to deal with that sin. The grace of God and the power of the Spirit. So we need to act in line with that truth. In fact, it's the gospel itself that gives us the very strength we need to walk in step with the gospel. Let's think about what's at stake and how the gospel shapes our ability, our ability to walk with God. Now, I quoted Jerry Bridges earlier, and he mentioned how so much of our Christian experience has been all about the the challenges and how-tos of discipleship. And those are not bad things, by the way. We are called to to be disciples and learners and to make disciples of all nations. And we're going to look at that mission God's given us in a couple of weeks. But the challenges and how-tos by themselves are powerless to accomplish anything. 
no matter how simple the strategy or method is, our flesh is incapable of accomplishing God's purposes. Our effort will never be enough. And again, when we rely on what we can do for God in our effort and ingenuity, we will, we're going to cycle back and forth between pride and despair. When we succeed and then fail, and then succeed and then fail, and then fail, and then wonder why we can't ever seem to get it right for very long. But the gospel of Jesus does not point us to ourselves or our own effort. It doesn't tell us to you know, just tighten the belt strap a little bit more and dig down deep inside your heart. Instead, it points us to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul rebuked the Galatians for moving away from in chapter 3, verse 3. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to try and pull this off yourself? That's what he calls them to rely on in chapter 5. Look at 5.16 with me. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the Spirit of God who has the power to produce in us the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness that befits our life as a community on mission. If we live by the Spirit, if He's the one who's given new life to our dead bodies and our dead hearts, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Our very ability to walk with God flows out of the gospel and points back to the gospel. The gospel must be central. It must be central to all we are, to all we do, That's what shapes us into a community. That's what guides and fuels us as we live on mission. And we never outgrow our need for it. We never outgrow our need for it. It is the gospel of Jesus that has the power to change our lives and to change lives in New England as God makes himself known through our love and our testimony by the Holy Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ. We need the centrality of the gospel. 